Here we go. The Pharisee, ooh, wow. Wake up. If you're asleep, you're awake now. I think it's really not up to me to fix this either. So I'm going to do this. All right, I think it's gonna work. Fantastic. Be horrible if you had to hear a lot of screaming the whole time. So let's. Uh, um, so like I said before, that you you get this kind of weird few verses in the midst of these these parables. Um, but as a way of introduction, there's a I'm I, I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell. He's a writer, a podcaster. Uh, Revisionist history is his podcast. is very popular. Uh, big fan. Read most of his books. I've heard him speak publicly a few different times at conferences, and um, and he had one of his first books. Actually, his first book is called Blink. It's a very uh, popular book. Maybe you've read this book, um, but he talks about um, he talks about he, in every one of his books. He tells you these like different stories. He's very much a storyteller, uh, and obviously these are, are are nonfictions. These are true stories, but he tells about a story about Dr. John uh, Goatman, and Dr. John Goatman is kind of an expert when it comes to marital strife. And supposedly, he is about 90% accurate on identifying uh, eventual divorce in couples. So, like, he'll watch uh, couples do counseling. He can almost, with 90% accuracy, uh, say, yep, this couple is going to get divorced. And the reason why he, he's able to identify uh, couples that will eventually get divorced, is he calls it the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So he mentions these four things. He says, criticism, contempt, 
defensiveness, and stonewalling, if he ever sees any of these four characteristics amongst any of the partners in a marriage, uh, he can almost kind of say, yeah, 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 th- there's going to be issues with this couple. If they're not able to fix these things, uh, most likely this couple will end in divorce. And he says the number one, the most dangerous of the four horsemen of the apocalypse is contempt. He says that the attitude of I'm better than you and all your ideas are dumb and everything that you, you do is just kind of like you're less than me. That type of spirit and attitude is like danger, danger with any marriage. Um, and so Dr. John Goatman says that like, if you, every time you, a couple is, if one of the members of the, of the, of the, one of the spouses think that they're better than the other, and if that attitude and that spirit doesn't change, then it will lead to divorce. And he says like this decay of admiration is one of the biggest problems in marriages is that when one of the couples doesn't admire or find the other, not, they're not fond of the other, that it leads to contempt. And in that contempt then leads to divorce. And so the way to change that is to think about the past, like when you met this person, how you fell in love with this person, the good things, the positive things about this person, that leads to admiration, leads to fondness, which then kind of breaks you of the contempt and breaks you of this attitude of I'm better than you are. And so what he's basically saying is that humility is the key. That if you have a, a, a spirit of self-centeredness or that you think you're better than someone else, uh, the way to kind of fix that is almost, in a sense, be more humble, to, uh, to recognize that you're not perfect while you're identifying the weaknesses of your spouse. You're not perfect either. You have weaknesses as well. And so when we think about this, even with, with and I do this a lot with uh, premarital counseling, when I'm counseling Christian couples, uh, we use a book called When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey, and I think the title is really helpful, is that both spouses are sinners, right? They're both, there's not one that's perfect, and the other one's like, thank goodness I'm marrying you because you're perfect, and I'm not perfect, and I'm, and I'm horrible, and I'm weak, and so I need you. No, no, both partners in the marriage are not perfect. They're both sinners, and when sinners have received grace, they ought to show grace to the other, right? If you recognize that you're a sinner and that you have uh, flaws and that you're not perfect, you won't, all, you won't just focus all your attention on the other person's weaknesses and sins and their, their struggles, but instead you'll recognize that, yeah, I'm a sinner and Christ has given me grace and I should show grace to my spouse as well. And so I, I bring that up because one of the issues with the Pharisees is that they have contempt. They're self-centered. They have no humility whatsoever. That's why Jesus kept on saying, you're proud, and the proud will be humbled, and the humbled will be exalted. Um, and so kind of, the, kind of a shortened version of that main point is you are what you love. You are what you love. And so point number one is, is the self-centered lifestyle of the religious the self-centered lifestyle of the religious. And, and again, Jesus gave this parable of the dishonest manager. He's talking about money. He says in verse 13, uh, at the end of this parable, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, the story continues, and I guess Jesus had told this parable, and obviously the focus of that parable was the disciples, but the Pharisees are still there. They're still hearing Jesus teach and speak, and they hear all these things that Jesus talked about when, in regards to money, and it says that they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus says, 
that they are lovers of money. We get this description of the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and the lawyers, the re- religious lawyers, that they are lovers of money. And so they ridicule Jesus' view that, that uh, we should invest our money in the, in, in the kingdom of God, that we should invest our money in heavenly things, and that we should serve God and not money. And they ridiculed Jesus for that teaching. And I think even this idea of slaves of money or, or lovers of money, they, they're in a sense they serve money is really what Jesus is saying. And, and money is just one aspect of their sin. They actually are slaves to their own desires. They're lovers of self. And that is their biggest issues. They love themselves and they love what brings them joy, what brings them, what satisfies their desires. And money is one of those things. And, and really these Pharisees are false teachers. Uh, Jesus says in, in Luke, early in Luke when he, when he does the woes, they, are, they are, are, are whitewashed tombs. They're dead inside. And they're leading people to hell, he says. They're the blind leading the blind. And they give off this veneer of righteousness. They're like that really cheap furniture. This is a veneer, not real wood. It's veneer. They, this is what they are. They, they look righteous, but really they're not. They are decaying. They are dead inside. They're false teachers. They, carry on, they care only for their own profit. And that's why they are this way. That's why they are super religious. That's why they give off this veneer of righteousness, because they realize that this is how they make gain in the world. This is how they elevate themselves in their society. Paul talks about this this. The false teaching, he says in Philippians 3, 18 through 19, enemies of the cross of Christ. These are false teachers or enemies of the cross of Christ. And their God is their belly, Paul says. Their God is their belly. That is a great description to describe the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jerusalem in the first century. They are, their God that they worship is their belly. They care only for what pleases them. And they exploit others with falsehood for greedy gain. That's why when Paul is instructing Timothy and he's instructing them on him on appointing elders or pastors of the church, what does he say to him? That elders and overseers should not be lovers of money. He says the same thing in Titus 1.7, that overseers and elders and pastors shouldn't be greedy for gain. Leaders in the church are called to be different. They're not called to, be, to use their, their, their calling and their position in God's kingdom and God's church to then exploit for their own gain. So don't ever put someone in authority in the church who's a lover of money. Because they'll use their job, they'll use their position, they'll use their calling for their own purposes and not for the purposes of God or shepherding the people. Even Jesus says, I mean, Jesus says in Luke eleven thirty nine, he's talking about the Pharisees, inside you're full of greed. This is what Jesus says about these, these people, these people who give off this veneer of righteousness, the people who are perceived to be the righteous ones, the one closest to God, are actually people full of greed. And as church leaders and as church congregation, you should look for out for people that are lovers of money. And whenever there's a person in your church that is, it seems like, oh, that person's really like, it seems like they're called to, to ministry, calls a, they're called to leadership in the church. But if you identify a love of money in their heart, 
don't ever put them in leadership in the church. Jesus says that, and, and again, the context here is money and talking about money. I mean, he said in verse 13, you can't serve God and money. And these Pharisees, in response to that statement, ridicule Christ. They ridicule this idea and this investment in, the whole, in heavenly things. They laughed at his infant that they should serve God and not money. They laughed at this. They mocked this. You would think people who followed God wouldn't mock investment in God's kingdom. But yet they mocked which reveals their heart. In a sense, these, these Pharisees are practical atheists. They don't really believe in God. I mean, obviously, they, they, they believe God exists, but they believe that God can be managed. They had no real fear of God. If they had a fear of God, number one, they would recognize Jesus as the Son of God, right? But also, they would, would not ridicule God's word. They wouldn't ridicule the view of serving God over money and mocking that view, mocking that teaching by Christ. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They lacked wisdom. Why? Because they did not fear God. And they lacked wisdom in money. Why? Because they did not fear God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person doesn't accept uh, this, these things because they lack the Spirit of God. John 3.19, people love the darkness over the light. John 5.40, they're unwilling to come to the light. They're unwilling to come to God and have life because they love their sin. They view Jesus' teaching as, as, as they, lock, they mock his teaching. They ridicule his teaching. Something to be amused by. They see Jesus as a clown to be amused by. They see his teaching on money as some, some clown, some ridiculous statement, which very much reveals their true heart. The view, how you view money is, in a sense, a periscope into your actual heart. It really much is. And Jesus is identifying this as he said, their love for money is, is revealing their true heart, what they truly serve. They don't serve God, they serve Money, they serve their own desires, they serve themselves. Self-centeredness is their biggest problem. And I think people, even people who claim to be Christians, their issue with money brings a lot up to the surface on their actual views about God. If you believe your money is to serve yourself and only your family, to give you comfort, security, and respect so that people think well of you, then you, like the Pharisees, are revealing your true heart that you are self-centered and you're not a lover of God, you're a lover of money. And if someone taught you, and if I'm teaching you this, or you're reading it in a book, or you're reading God's Word or whatever, you mock at this, at this idea of self-denial when it comes to money. The idea of investing your money in the kingdom of God seems like, well, that's not really for me. What comes first is myself and my family and my comfort and my security and my respect. That first and whatever's left over, then I'll give to the kingdom of God. You mock this idea of, of giving away what actually isn't even yours. You mock and ridicule that idea. It says that the Pharisees, Jesus continues a little bit here and 
And obviously what's so interesting is that they, Jesus recognizes their heart, right? He calls them lovers of money. They not, they're not making the statement. He sees right through them. He says here in the next verse, verse 15, and he said to them, again, he says to them, so they didn't reveal this to him in a conversation. He knows their heart. And he, Jesus says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. I'm going to move down a little bit because I think this verb is really helpful. Uh, in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, until since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. That verb is very interesting. Forces, I had to read over that a bunch and study it a little bit. Like, what? That's a weird phrasing. Everyone forces themselves into it. Well, if you use that same verb, talking about the Pharisees, they pursue what is, what is exalted among men. They force themselves, they earnestly pursue with force and vigor what, exalt, what is exalted among men. That is their major focus. They're lovers of praise. Even says a little bit later here, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They, they yearn for praise. They yearn for people to exalt them. And I can resonate with that. I don't know if you're in this room that you yearn for acceptance. You, you desperately need people's validation, either through work or through relationships or in your marriage or, or whatever. You, you, you yearn for validation. Praise from people is like currency to you. And you know when you're down in your life because you're, in, you're in a sense, uh, bankrupt with it when it comes to pra- praise. And you're just, you're just yearning for people's validation and praise. And actually, I think money, in a sense, is used as a state of value, right? I just want it to be valued. I want my company to value me through how much they pay me. That validates how good I am at my job, and how it, val- it validates who I am as a person and my identity. Money really is, is something, in our, especially in our culture, that is a symbol of validation in a lot of ways. And these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they loved money, but really what they loved is what money gave them, and it gave them praise. And so they were religiously zealous, and they were fine-tuned in their moral performances before others. It was a way to prosperity, and they pursued that with great vigor. Galatians 6.12, Paul talks about the desire to make good showing in the flesh. Paul was an expert. Saul of Tarsus was an expert before he was a believer in, in, in being good in the flesh. To be noticed. Jesus even talks about this in Matthew 23, 5 through 7, that the Pharisees like to be noticed in the courtyard, in the, in the city streets. And so they would make their garments longer, and they would, they, would, they would change things about their clothing and their appearance so that they are noticed as more righteous. Everything about their lives was about fine-tuning themselves so that they are perceived as men of God. And Paul, again, was an expert at this. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, 3, 2 through 12. I'm going to turn over there real quick. Philippians 3. It's a great passage. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, even if anyone else thinks he was, has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of, God, of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all rubbish in order that I may gain God and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in, in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I mean, Paul, he says this in Colossians 1.14, he was advancing in Judaism. He had all the connections, all the network. His father was religious. Everything about Paul's life was so fine-tuned, but it was all veneer of righteousness. And Paul recognizes this when he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, when he puts his faith in Christ, recognizing that his righteousness is in Christ's work, not in his own. He recognizes that all of that stuff is rubbish. It's all rubbish. Because by works of the law, none is justified only by faith. No flesh will be justified on their own through their obedience to the law, only by faith in Christ Jesus. What's so interesting is that they put on this veneer, they fine-tune their performance, but God knows their heart. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. They fail to justify themselves through their moral performances, through their fine-tuning. They fail to justify themselves, even though they spend so much of their time, so much of their focus, so much of their mental energy to fine-tune themselves so they're justified before others. God sees their actual heart, and he calls their actions revolting. Jesus sees into their own hearts. 1 Kings 8, 39, whose heart you know according, uh, according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all, their, of all the children of mankind. You know all people's hearts. There is no faking. There is no acting. You can't act your way to justification. You can't act your way to uh, be accepted by God. God sees your actual heart, and he sees the actions of these Pharisees as detestable in his sight. Another word is revolting. He finds it revolting. Have you ever eaten anything that was revolting? I, 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 there's a funny story. Uh, you can tell Lisa this. Uh, it, it's a funny story. I, I tried to make cookies one time. This was a while, way back when. I think we were on our old house where uh, David Greenwood lives now, near, near over there. And I made cookies. And instead of putting sugar, I put salt and didn't, because they you know they looked the same. And at that time, Lisa was taking our sugar and salt and putting them in Tupperwares and kept them in the same place. I'm not trying to blame her. I'm just saying that's kind of how it was set up. So I grabbed the saw and I poured, you know, how much you would pour for sugars for cookies and not knowing what I was doing, not realizing that I had done that until after I had made them and then I started eating them. And you had, when you bite into it, you're like, oh my gosh, what happened to these cookies? This is revolting. This is disgusting. You want to vomit it out, right? Because it Especially with salt, because it's like, oh, it's like, it burns. It's like, this is disgusting. You're expecting something sweet, and you get something quite disgusting. 
And this is what Jesus is saying. He says, your actions are revolting, disgusting. And I think it's important for us to realize that God knows your heart. So you need to check your heart. What is your motivation? And as, a, as, a, as somewhat of an encouragement, or maybe not an encouragement, as somewhat of a, a, a challenge to you, do more actions and less posting. I think that's where we tend to find our validation. That's where we tend to find, like, this is how I'm going to be a morally righteous person by my post on wherever, whatever. Do more, pl- uh, post less. Because I think while we do those things, it's hard for us to know what our true motivations is a lot of the times. These Pharisees are not only lovers of money, they're lovers of praise, but they're also lovers of pleasure. And so this passage here at the end in verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, I'm not going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about this passage. I mean, we could have probably done a whole sermon on divorce and remarriage, but that's not what we're doing. But one of the issues with the Pharisees was is that they actually were not very good at following the law. They thought they were really good at following the law. They thought they were very good at following all the details of the law. Hence why Jesus says before this verse, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. He said the, the, the law has not gone away. I came to fulfill the law. The law does not save you. The law does not redeem you. does not justify you before God. I, through my work on the cross, will justify people. My obedience to the law will justify people. They put their faith in me. But your works will not justify you. And they thought that they were working quite good. They thought they were pretty good at following the law. But actually, they were not very good because when it came to divorce, that's where they got sloppy. So in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, basically God does give a law for divorce. But the problem was is that the Pharisees took that as freedom to divorce their wives for any reason whatsoever. So like they weren't a good cook, divorce, remarriage. Uh, my wife's getting a little older, don't like the way she looks, divorce, remarriage. God says there's a law, I have the freedom to do so. This was happening. They were misusing God's law. And even Jesus says in Matthew 19, 1 through 9, because the Pharisees bring them this idea of divorce up to Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, God gave that to Moses because of your own hardened heart. That's why he gave the law. Actually, you're supposed to stay with your, with your wife. You're supposed to be joined together as one flesh. But God brings together, let no man bring asunder, right? The hardness of their heart. They use the law to appease their own desire. They actually love their own self. They love their own pleasure more than they love God. They actually even use divorce to marry someone else as a way to appease themselves. The danger, this leads to one of the things I want to kind of focus on here, the danger of the moral high ground. The issue with, with, um, with the Pharisees is they, they believe they had the moral high ground in all these different situations. And I think even though we look to the first century as kind of this, you know, Jesus interacted with these self-righteous people, I actually believe that our age today is probably more self-righteous than that world ever was. And and I think where people tend to find their self-righteousness is in their political views. We are in such a supra, 
like, unbelievable like, uh, age where politics and political views are so strong. And I think people use them as self-righteousness swords, as weapons. And I think what ends up happening is this love for praise, this love for validation, attempting to justify yourself before others, you bury your guilt they're the ones that are guilty. They're the ones that are the sinners. I'm not actually the sinner. I'm actually the self-righteous one. I'm the one on the moral high ground. I'll tell you where you're all, you're where you're wrong and where you need to repent, but I don't need to do that at all. You buried your guilt. You spend a lot of time pointing the finger when your own heart is revolting. God sees your own heart and he sees your heart and he finds that view, that action as revolting. Your right political positions will not justify you before God. There will be many people who will be judged by God who believe they were morally good because they were pro-life or they drove an electric car or marched in a social justice protest. People think they are morally good because they do those things or they hold those views when actually in their own heart they're full of self-centeredness and full of pride, full of contempt, and God finds their views, they find, he finds their heart as revolt. And instead of forcing earnestly to be justified before men, instead we forcibly, earnestly seek to justify ourselves before God. And that gets to the second point. The humble lifestyle of the gospel follower. Jesus kind of says here, in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. So basically, the, the good news of the kingdom is now being preached since John. Now, John prepared the way. He set Jesus up, right? He preached repentance, and then Jesus came on the scene, and John left the stage. And Jesus taught about you know, if you receive him and believe in his name, you shall be called children of God. He talks about in John 3, 16 through 17, which we read a little bit earlier today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And there are individuals in the Bible that even in the New Testament, in the Gospels that we read, that you can see that they earnestly forced themselves to enter the kingdom of God. Think about the frail woman who struggled with her sickness and her disease for 12 years. What does she do? She runs into this crowd of people so she can touch Jesus' cloak, right? So that she could seek Jesus because she knew that Jesus was the Son of God and could heal her. Talk about someone who earnestly pushed themselves into the kingdom of God. You think about Zacchaeus, right, Who's, who got up on the tree so he could see Jesus. He earnestly forced himself into the kingdom of God, seeking after Jesus. Blind Bartimaeus, can't even walk, screams and cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Talk about someone who earnestly forced themselves and pushed themselves into the kingdom of God. You are justified before God through the gospel of Christ. You're justified by faith and trust in the gospel of Christ. 
You're not justified the work of the law, but through faith in Christ. You're justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the person and the promises of God is how you're justified before God. David Wells says it is this God majestic and holy in his being, this God who loves no bounds because his holiness knows no limit, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. People are starving for the greatness of God. And a lot of times in churches, they're not even given that, right? They're given these like kind of frou-frou self-help sermons that Oprah could give. They don't, people want the gospel. They need the greatness of God. Don't even realize that they need it, but that's what they need it. What people need today is not more self-help nor positive thinking. They need the greatness of God. They need the majesty and the holiness of God. Why? Because you get the majesty and holiness of God, you recognize your sin and you recognize fear of him, and that leads you to what? To cry out for forgiveness. To cry out for grace. Through faith in the gospel of Christ, your heart is transformed from a self-centered heart to a humble heart, which loves the gospel of Christ and all its implications on your life. Instead of being a lover of money, you become a lover of the gospel of Christ. And the implications of the gospel in your life, that you're a sinner saved by grace in Christ. You know what wonders that does to you when you recognize that you don't have to strive to be perfect, to justify yourself before other people? That actually you're a sinner in need of grace? You know what that does to your treatment of other people when you recognize you're no different than anyone else in your weakness and frailness? That you're a child of God and you are a, his workmanship. That everything that you have is his. Everything that you are is his. That has so much implications when you recognize that everything that you have is God's. That he gives you everything. Everything is by his grace. You're more willing to give it away when you recognize that he is the giver of all things. Not only are you a lover of gospel of Christ, but you're also a lover of God's word. So no longer being a lover of praise, you're a lover of God's word. You meditate on it, you obey it, you centered your life on it. You're also a lover of others. The issue with the Pharisees in divorce is they didn't love their wives. They loved themselves. That's why they so easily divorced them. That's why they were so, so seeking the freedom of divorce. They didn't love them. They were lovers of self. The beauty of Ephesians 5.21 is submission to one another. To love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave his life up for it. That is self, that's other focus. That is love of other. And that was what's missing when this idea of divorce and adultery that Jesus is talking about here in verse 18 is that the Pharisees loved themselves, and they loved themselves so much that they wanted their pleasure, and they wanted their pleasure so much that they just divorced their, divorced their wives and married someone else. If they loved the other person, if they understood submission and care and devotion, they would not have the hard heart that they had, which was the reason for divorce. That was the reason for the law, Jesus says in Matthew 19. To be lovers of others is to be transformed, their hearts transformed by the gospel of Christ. So my plea to you is to press earnestly to be a faithful kingdom citizen. To press earnestly to be a faithful 
kingdom citizen, forsaking all for Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 3, 8 through 9, who gave all, he saw all things as rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ, giving up your sin, number one. There's some of you that are holding on to a sinful habit that really the issue is, is not, uh, it's not a, maybe it is an addiction issue and you do need to talk to someone more about it. But sometimes there's a deeper just, I don't want to give it up. I don't want to forsake this. This is too important to me. I need this. I think for us to understand, if we are pressing earnestly to be faithful kingdom citizens, that we'll give up stuff. We'll, be, we'll give up our sins that hold us back from faithfulness to God. We'll give up self-righteousness, that, this desire to need to be justified as good and righteous before others. A, a desire to, of self-denial of recognizing the things that we have doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to God, that we're simply stewards of these things. And so our invest- you're, gonna, you're in this room, you're going to have, like some of you are younger and you don't have very much money, most likely you'll, you're going to have money. You're going to be able to, to maybe buy, uh, maybe you're able to buy a little house or maybe you're able to rent a place and you're able to, to own a car and you're able to pretty much pretty be fairly stable in life have a pretty good job. Maybe you get promotions in that job. Maybe you take some of your money and you invest it in some mutual funds or some stocks. You let that money grow. Some of you are probably going to receive blessings from others. You're going to get gifts from others. You're maybe going to get a massive check from a, a family member. And it's one of, hey, we're going to give this gift to you so you can help you buy a house or something like that. You're going to have successes in life, at work, in other areas of your life. You're going to have successes. The issue is, are you going to thank God for those things that are by His grace? So by that, you're going to serve God with them, or are you going to use them to serve yourself? Are you going to be a lover of money, or are you going to be a lover of the gospel? Are you going to be a lover of God's Word, or are you going to be a lover of others? And I think every day that you wake up, you should ask yourself that this day, Lord, would you provide the, the, the spirit so that I will abide in your love. That, Lord, would you provide the, the, the trust in your word this day? Lord, would you give me love for others? Every day, we are dependent on God's spirit and God's grace to be able to love Christ, to be able to love his word, and to love others. You cannot do that by simply just willing yourself Every moment of every day, day by day, we should seek God's face for his grace to love him, to love his word, and to love others. I wanted to end with this. Um, there's a, 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 an evangelism tool that we're teaching our college students to use, and it has these paintings, and you kind of have conversations through through paintings, and, and the, the painting that, uh, that I was looking at th- this week and reminded me of all this, so I wanted to end with this. It's, it's a painting, or actually it's a kind of a, a sculpture on a building, and it's the scene of the golden calf in Exodus. And the people are worshiping the golden calf, and Moses is a little bit further, further away with the, with, uh, with, the, with the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and he's about to throw them right at the, at the calf. And it's titled, What Do We Adore? Question mark. What do we adore? And Dostoevsky says that man, so long as he remains free, has no more constant and agonizing anxiety than to find as quickly as possible someone to worship. 
someone to worship. John Piper says that true worship is ruined, reduced, gutted, flattened when the majesty of God, especially seen in his all-embracing providence, is replaced with a focus on me and my world. And how God can make me the center of his focus rather than making his greatness the focus of my life. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, to turn from idols and to serve the living God. What do we adore? What are we adoring over God? And my plea with you is to turn away from it and worship and serve the true and living God. Are you devoted to your own happiness? Are you a lover of money, a lover of praise to justify yourself, a lover of pleasure? These are the horsemen of the apocalypse. They lead to destruction. They don't satisfy your hunger, your starvation for the greatness of God. Rather, turn away and look to Christ. Embrace the goodness of the kingdom of God. Press earnestly forward to enter and be justified before God. Have your heart justified to be a lover of the gospel of Christ, to be a lover of God's word, and to be a lover of others. Turn away from worshiping. Turn away from the adoration of the world. Turn away from the adoration of money. Turn away from the adoration of the praise of others. Turn away from the adoration of pleasure and turn and love the gospel of Christ. Love God's word and love others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, Even these difficult passages kind of sandwiched amongst all of these uh, amazing parables, Lord. You are speaking through us, through every word, every sentence, Every phrase in your word is speaking to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and to believe it, to adhere to it, Lord. Jesus is speaking to a lot of us in this room, lovers of money, lovers of praise, lovers of pleasure. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would transform people's heart away from self-centeredness and to humility, Lord. You would turn their hearts away from adoring the world and and adoring you and serving you. For those who are not believers, Lord, who that speaks to them in this room. That you would give them fear of you, Lord. They They would recognize your holiness and your majesty. And Lord, that they would repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and their redemption and adoption by you. For those in the room that are Christians... Who have, been, who have been transformed by this, your Spirit, Lord, who have been forgiven, who have been redeemed, but who are struggling, Lord, with adoration of the world. Lord, change their hearts, Lord. Uh, draw them closer to you. Revive them, Lord. Renew them by your Spirit. May they seek out counsel. May they seek out a brother or sister in Christ who can Meet with them and encourage them and pray over them and correct them and teach them, Lord. Through your word is how your people become profitable, how, how become equipped for good works. Lord, we pray, Lord, that for everyone in this room that's a believer, they wouldn't stay stagnated and stuck in their sin and their adoration of the world, but Lord, that you would pluck them out from that and renew them. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper, and the way that we do this is that we uh, will just...